Open up your Bibles to Galatians 5 and get ready for your pop quiz. One question, fill in the blank. I have a right standing with God because, and fill in the blank. This can be asked or phrased a lot of different ways. I'm okay with God because uh, I can boldly stand in His presence without fear because I I can joyfully approach His throne and know that He won't turn me away. Fill in your blank. And so this morning, if you feel like you are okay with God, what do you base that on? That, that's the question that's at the center of Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you sense that you are okay with God, what do you base that on? On. Now, the Galatians were a group of Gentiles, okay? so that means that they weren't Jewish. They didn't have all the background that goes along with knowing the one God of Israel. So they hear Paul preach the gospel to them. They place their trust in Christ as a result of hearing the gospel. But something happened after Paul left, after he started the churches, after he left, something happened... And Paul's writing this letter because he's desperately afraid of how they're going to fill in their blank. Of what they're going to base their okayness with God on. And so starting this morning in chapter 5, we're in the verses in the territory of what lots of folks consider the, the pinnacle of Paul's argument here. This is where everything comes to a point, to a head, and there is so much gospel goodness here. I felt many times this week like my mind and my heart might just explode, having soaked in these verses for so long, and there is so much here. Six verses for us this morning, and we're really only going to cover about three and a half of them, so this will be a two-part message. Or else we were going to be here till like 2.30. So stand if you're able. Somehow we aired and we have the NIV in the worship folder. So follow along on the screen uh, or in your, in your Bibles. Uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version there. Galatians 5, uh, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed. From Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope 
of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. God's word is inspired. It is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Let's pray again. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. Take this word and indeed show us Christ as we've already sung and prayed. Show us this freedom that we have in Christ. Grant that we would grab hold of it that we would stand firm in it, that we would never let go of it. Guard our hearts and our minds. Guard my mouth. That only what is pleasing may come out. Guard our ears that we would only hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Everything else would be pushed to the side. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So as we encounter Paul's true gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus in these verses, indeed in the whole letter, there are some things that we need to do. There's an outline in your worship folder. Three things. For part one, fight for scandalous freedom. Refuse a second slavery and cut off your reliance to the law. Number one, fight for scandalous freedom. The first part of verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free Stand firm, therefore. So if Paul has to tell the Galatians, if he has to tell us to stand firm, it's pretty easy to deduce from that command that it's possible, it's even likely, that we will be moved, that the ongoing experience of the freedom Christ intends for us to have is not automatic. It won't just happen In fact, if we do nothing, we will move away or be moved away from freedom. So stand firm, he says. The tendency is not to drift toward freedom, but to drift or to be dragged away. So, kids... And none of mine looked up. Adults, you've been playing at the beach in the edge of the surf. And a big wave comes in and then it goes out and you feel the power of that wave sucking the sand out from underneath your toes as the wave goes back. You feel the need in that moment to stand firm. You feel the power that's at work pulling back out. You feel the need to stand firm. Or maybe you've gone out a little deeper and you're playing in the waves and you're bobbing up and down. 
And after a little bit, you look up at the shore. Now, where is my umbrella again? Where, where are our chairs and our... Oh, they're way down there. What has happened? We, we've drifted. We've been carried along and not even felt it or realized it. That's what's going on here with gospel freedom. If we don't stand firm, if we don't keep our bearings fixed, now where is my umbrella again? Um, If we don't keep our bearings fixed, we will lose the experience of that freedom. Now the word here that Paul uses, this stand firm, actually has a, a very military sense about it. Right? It, it is forceful, it is diligent. Right? We have to put up a fight. Fight for this scandalous freedom. That's what I've made the point here. So we have to put up a fight for it. We have to be forceful and diligent about our standing firm, but we also need to know what it is that we're fighting for, what it is that we're standing firm for. Now, this freedom, Paul actually words this a little awkwardly on purpose to sort of double emphasize what he's talking about. He uses the same word for freedom two times, once in the verb form and then once in a noun form. And so literally, it's more like you have been freedomed for freedom. This profound, glorious freedom. You've been set free. From what? Obviously from some type of lack of freedom, some type of slavery, some type of bondage. And if you read through the scriptures, it's all over the place. Right? Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from our enemy, the devil. And if you, if you think about the common thread... Among all of those, in essence, we've been set free from the law. So so think about that. Can't have sin without the law because before the law came, I didn't know what it was to sin. Paul said that. Death only comes as a consequence for breaking God's law. And what does the devil throw up in our faces to cause us great feelings of guilt and condemnation, but our failures to fulfill God's law? Ultimately, it's the law we've been set free from. Paul captures this idea nicely in another letter that he wrote to the church at Rome. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's the key, right? Can't miss that. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. All right. Buckle up. 
if Christ has set me free. The law no longer has power over me. It no longer has binding authority over me. Let me put an even finer point on it. If Christ has set me free, if I am in Christ, right, two times, pointed out to you, if I am in Christ, I no longer have to obey the law. I'm not under obligation anymore to keep the law. If you are in Christ, you don't have to obey. Gospel freedom is scandalous freedom. Doesn't what I've just said sound scandalous? Let me borrow from verse 6 briefly. We're not, we're not covering verse 6, but let me just borrow from it briefly. Where Paul says, in Christ Jesus, right? So there it is again. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Christian, neither your obedience nor your disobedience can change your standing with God the Father. Neither your obedience nor your disobedience can change your standing with God the Father. Now, how did you fill in your blank? So the question was, if you've got a right standing with God, what's it based on? How did you fill it in? We almost need another second fill in the blank of what can change that okayness? What can change that right standing with God so that you would have the opportunity to write in that blank absolutely nothing? There is nothing that will change your right standing with God the Father. My good performance didn't make me right with God. My bad performance won't take away my being right with God. In the gospel, and this is a huge gospel truth, that we all need so deeply ingrained in us and we come hardwired from the womb with the opposite ingrained in us. There is absolutely nothing you can do, Christian, to make God love you any less. Nothing. Not a single doggone thing. Now that's the half of that that we're probably more familiar with and maybe more okay with. It's the second half that is equally true. 
there's nothing we can do to make him love us anymore. Or to make him any more pleased with us than he already is. That's the scandal of the gospel. And if the gospel has never sounded that scandalous to you, if the gospel has never sounded too good to be true, then you've never heard the true gospel. And that's a shame, but it's not surprising. Because folks have long been toning down the gospel. Watering down the gospel. Rounding off some of those hard edges because they're scared. Because they're afraid. They say, you can't say things like that. You you can't say that you don't have to obey because then people won't. That's cheap grace. If you don't impress upon people their need to obey, then they'll live like hell. Some of you this morning are uncomfortable. I have made you uncomfortable. Maybe I've made you angry, I don't know. At at least worried, perhaps. Some of you are worried. And you're waiting for me to get to the to the butt, right? You're waiting. You're, ma- you're waiting for me to get to the part where I tone it down a bit, where I temper this in some way, where I say, well, actually, footnote, asterisk, you really do have to obey. You're waiting for me to do that, and I will not do it. I refuse. I will not. I won't. All of these things that I've said about the scandalous gospel of Jesus get a period at the end of them. Full stop. No comma, no footnote, no asterisk. Now, this is a two-part sermon. Right? I'm going to address some of your concerns, some of your angst next week. But I'll explain nothing away. I'll water nothing down. I'll say nothing next week that will in any way take away from the scandal of the gospel. This is not a bait and switch. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do do you live in that kind of freedom? Do your neighbors who know that you're a Christian think that you are the most free person that they know? Or are you bound up and I'm I'm not going to address those concerns today. I'm going to let you wrestle with the but if, if you tell people they don't have to obey then they won't. Wrestle with that. I'm not going to address it today. We need to let the full weight of this freedom 
the full weight of the scandal that is the gospel weigh on our hearts and on our minds. It needs time to sink into our hard, hard heads. And, and I will say this too. If what I've said about the scandalous freedom of the gospel has you riled up in some way, you ought to press into that. You ought to examine that riled upness, the angst that you feel, and figure out why. Why does him saying you don't have to obey, why does that worry me, offend me, make me uncomfortable? Why are you perhaps allergic to this glorious and scandalous freedom? We must fight for scandalous freedom. Number two, we must also refuse a second slavery. If we don't stand firm, if we say, well, gosh, this just sounds too scandalous to be true, we will end up doing the second half of verse one. We will submit again to a yoke of slavery. So a yoke, it's akin to a harness, right? It's what uh, attaches the animal to its load, right? The yoke connects the animal to its work, to the plow, to the wagon, whatever the case may be. It was very common for Jews in Paul's day and in Jesus' day to refer to the law as a yoke. Now, they would never, ever, in a million years, call it a yoke of slavery. But they often referred to a serious commitment to the study and the practice of, of the law as, as a yoke. And so, uh, two things to point out here in regard to that. Jesus knew that they spoke of the law in that way. Jesus knew that they referred to it as a yoke. That's why he took the term himself and used it. You think of where he did that? Right? Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gosh, that sounds a lot like freedom. Now, how is Jesus able to say this? How can he offer us rest? Well, it's because he himself, as he said, was lowly in heart. And he humbled himself to life on this earth. A life in which he perfectly fulfilled all the law. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he died the death that our sins deserved. He took the punishment that we earned with our failure to keep the law, and he gave us credit for his life of righteousness. That's how he can offer us rest. That's how he set us free to enjoy a life of scandalous, freezing, uh, scandalous freedom. The reason 
we don't have to obey is that he already did. And his obedience was perfect and complete and it is finished. But if we refuse to fight to live in light of that freedom, we become slaves all over again. And we place upon ourselves again a burden of having to obey, of having to perform, of having to measure up, of having to maintain God's favor and acceptance. Now, the big thing, the second big thing here about this yoke of slavery is that Paul says again. Paul tells these Galatian Gentile Christians that if you add your obedience to your faith in Christ, if you add your performance to his finished work, if you have anything filling in your blank that has to do with you and your obedience and your performance, you are being enslaved again. But wait a minute. These Galatians are not Jews. They have never toiled under the burden of the law. They've never known God's law, much less viewed it as a yoke that they needed to study and practice. They were busy being pagan and doing the kinds of things that pagans do. Really, really bad things. Amoral, immoral, liberal. And here they are, the path that they're about to embark upon, instead of being amoral, liberal, pagans, they're about to become ultra-moral conservatives. And Paul says that's slavery again. We've already seen this before. I won't rehash it all. But we've seen before where Paul equates scrupulous law adherence and reliance on the law, Paul equates that with pagan licentious living. And he says, your religious rule keeping is no better than those who break all the rules. In fact, it might be worse. Right? Because who is more likely to sense their need for a savior? We have to fight for scandalous freedom lest we submit again to a second slavery. And in order to do both one and two, we must do three. We must cut off our reliance on the law. Let's look finally and briefly at verses two through four. There's so much going on here. The first thing is circumcision. So this is actually the the first place in the letter that it it gets mentioned as, here's the deal here. Circumcision is the deal. Now, why is it such a big deal, right? It's the removal of such a small piece of skin. Why is it such a big deal? Is it worth all the drama? Um, Paul thinks yes. Uh, Because circumcision isn't just circumcision, right? If it were, then we could all excuse ourselves from this conversation. Because I'm sure that no one here is up in angst about whether or not to be circumcised. 
right? That's on none of our radars. That's not concerning any of us, okay? But what did circumcision represent? It stood for the entirety of the law. It was a marker, it was an indicator, it was a sign that you belonged to the covenant, to the old covenant, right? Having the foreskin cut off symbolized, indicated you being cut off from all the other peoples of the world. You being separated and separate, distinct, belonging to the Lord. And your circumcision, that initiatory rite of entrance into the covenant expressed your intention to put yourself under the whole covenant, the entirety of God's law, right? Well, that was then. That's what it signified and indicated then. First century, for the Galatians, what would it mean? Paul says what it means. If you accept circumcision, verse 2, then Christ is of no advantage to you. What does that mean? What is the advantage of Christ? Well, we've already mentioned it, right? His righteous life. Credited to our account. His sacrificial death. His taking our punishment. That's a huge advantage. But if you accept circumcision... And fill in the blank with any other religious rule-keeping. You forfeit the advantage that Christ offers. You, you can't have both, right? If you receive and rest upon Christ, His life and His death, you are saying, okay, I have a problem, and I can't fix it, and only Jesus can. Right? That's what you are saying when you receive and rest in Christ. You can't then turn around and try to solve your own problem. They cancel each other out. Verse 3, if you accept circumcision, you essentially damn yourself to hell. If you take up one part of the law, you're obligated to the whole. And we've already seen this back in chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, It's up there. So, yep, there it is. Uh, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all Things written in the book of the law and do them. See, taking up circumcision means taking up a whole new way of life, which isn't really a new way of life at all. It's slavery all over again, and you better be perfect at it, or it will not end well. And Paul knows that it won't end well, and he uses some pretty graphic language in verse 4. But you just wait a few verses down the road. It's going to really get it. Anyway, verse 4, right? A little play on words here, I think, considering the topic, right? If you do this, Paul says, you're not cutting yourself off. You're not separating yourself off from the JV Christians, right? Those who aren't really serious about it. You're cutting yourself off. You're severing yourself from the Savior. That's the separation that's occurring. You're severing yourself from Christ. See, it's an either-or scenario. It is either Christ's obedience or it is yours. 
It can't be a mixture of the two. Jesus won't allow it. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, a Presbyterian uh, professor and pastor, I love how he sums this up. So the Judaizers attempted to supplement the saving work of Christ by the merit of their own obedience to the law. That, says Paul, is impossible. Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even in the slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. Friend, how do you fill in your blank? How do you fill it in? Are are you scandalously free? Or have you submitted yourself again to a yoke of slavery? Are, Are you confidently resting in the righteous life and sacrificial death of your Savior? Or have you added a little of your own obedience in for good measure? And in doing so, cut yourself off, severed yourself from the very Savior that you claim has saved you. Let's pray.